1: This is CBS Ion Veterans, I'm Chaz Henry. This time around, the story of a soldier in jeopardy and how science and technology helped keep him alive and, nearly a half century later, find and thank the surgeons and medics who saved his life and limb. The story begins in the I-Corps section of Vietnam when then 22-year-old Army Specialist John Fogel Joined a unit of the 101st Airborne Division.
2: This was in uh, May of 1969, and I was an OH-6A crew chief.
0: The OH-6,
2: the highest performance light observation helicopter in the Army's inventory. It's kind of the teardrop-shaped helicopter. It's uh, very small.
0: Its total length from the forward edge of the rotor disk to the trailing edge of the tail
1: rotor disk is just over
2: 30 feet could be a four passenger but we flew with three
1: it's mission observation reconnaissance command control and target acquisition
2: crew chief was on the right behind the pilot an observer sat next to the pilot in front on the left so they were only a few feet away from me
1: as vogel and his crewmates flew low on their observation missions
2: maybe a hundred feet above the ground. We could see footprints in the mud, for example. That's how low we were flying. And we flew very slow as well. We were very vulnerable uh, in certain cases. So we had to keep our eyes peeled all the time for any signs of enemy activity. For a time there was pretty, uh, there was nothing much going on, but then uh, it all changed on July 25th, 1969.
1: July 25th was the date John Fogel's observation team was ordered to fly out and assess damage done by an Air Force bombing run on a site thought to have been held by the North Vietnamese Army.
2: There was a B-52 strike out southwest of LZ Sally, where we were based, about 20 miles southwest the night before. And so the briefing in the morning was to go out and observe what happened. This was like 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we were going to be gone probably an hour or so. We had a Cobra attack helicopter flying above us for protection. Part of my job as being a crew chief was also to serve as a door gunner.
1: More than 5 million rounds of ammo been fired from the Army's tough new helicopter,
2: the OH-6A Cayuse. The uh, M60 machine gun was uh, held with a bungee cord from the ceiling, and I would sit sideways in the back in a harness and kind of a jump seat that uh, I was holding the gun and moving it back and forth, and uh, the doors are off, of course, it's open and I'm somewhat hanging out of the aircraft since I'm sitting sideways uh, to be able to move the gun back and forth. We got briefed on the B-52 strike, so we flew out there to take a look. Very mountainous uh, terrain. The pilot was uh, First Lieutenant Alan Fazila, and the observer was Staff Sergeant Charles Patton. And I'd flown with them a number of times before. We took off and we flew out there with a cobra, attack cobra, flying overhead, piloted by Captain uh, Frank Zama. It took about 15 minutes to fly out there. It was along the Songbo River. And we saw a lot of craters. There had been a B-52 strike and it had been raining. And a lot of craters filled with water, and a lot of tracks everywhere, footprints in the mud. So the envy was out there, but we didn't see any at that time.
1: So John Fogle and his fellow crew members were told to fly about 15 miles eastward along a set of foothills to check out reports of enemy activity in the direction of a U.S. Army position called Firebase Brick. The flight that cloudy morning was peaceful until their observation helicopter made its way low into a canyon on the outskirts of the firebase.
2: The canyon was concealed from the firebase by a hill, even though it was very close by.
1: In that canyon, a squad of North Vietnamese soldiers, the enemy.
2: First thing I saw looking down was an enemy soldier hanging up laundry between two trees. He had a clothesline. And uh, so we totally surprised them. They were scrambling for their weapons. This all happened in a very short period of time, less than a minute we were on top of them.
1: Now, because observation helicopters weren't designed to attack, crews were told if you make contact with the enemy, get away as quickly as you can. For
2: about 30 seconds that we were there, it's like we were trying to uh, get out of the area. But it all happened so quickly, we were both shooting. I was firing at them. They were firing at me. Within uh, 15 or 20 seconds, one of the enemy soldiers got me in the right elbow and then the uh, right leg. I was shot three times. I knew I was hit because it severed the femoral artery. I had blood all over, uh, but I was still able to get off rounds. I had to change uh, over to my left hand and fire some more rounds. The right, my right arm was, um, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't use it. A bullet came up it shattered the uh, ceramic plate i was sitting on so it was a good thing it was uh, there i always checked before we took off
1: now typically in this sort of situation the attack helicopter flying above john and the others would have begun attacking the enemy soldier's position that plan changed though when the pilot of the helicopter john was in with lots of bullet holes in the aircraft and an ak-47 round lodged in his boot turned around to see John, his crew chief, covered in blood.
2: Lieutenant Spazila started yelling at him that we need to get to the closest medical facility, and he was yelling at the uh, Cobra pilot to uh, vector them. Uh, We weren't sure what uh, damage was done to the helicopter. We weren't sure if we could make it at that point. it. It seemed like forever, but it was only 10 minutes.
1: They landed at the Army's 22nd Surgical Hospital in Fubai, where surgeon Mo Levine, who graduated from VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, before starting medical school, was among the team of forward deployed doctors and medics.
0: Your days were very similar. People came in, you did your job, and then you went back and rested till the next case. Sometimes you were going 24 hours working, and sometimes you didn't work for 24
1: hours. Over time, Mo says, teams got very good at what they did.
0: The corpsmen, the nurses, couldn't get any better. They'd have an IV started if it wasn't already started. They'd have a catheter in, they'd have oxygen. They'd have the guy stripped in milliseconds almost. And he was ready to go to the operating room. For us, we would go to the operating room, everything would be laid out.
2: I remember getting on the gurney, and they were all there, you know, helping
1: me. John's operation was complex. He'd been hit three times, in the right elbow, right thigh, and right calf. The rifle round that ripped open his thigh had severed his femoral artery. He'd lost a lot of blood before pulling the bungee cord off his machine gun and wrapping it tight around his leg. In John's mind, question one was, of course, will I live? Question two, though, if I do, will I lose this leg? It would come down to how well surgeons could reconnect blood vessels. Again, Mo Levine.
0: I myself as an orthopedic surgeon did not deal with the vessels themselves. We had a number of general surgeons and one fellow by the name of Mel Wellborn who was superb and he could do with these vessels what had it to be done And as well as a number of our other general surgeons. Those are the ones that got the vessels together. We debrided the wounds, stabilized the fracture, put them in big body casts,
2: I made it through the operation, you know, the best I could as they saved my life and now my, I wasn't sure about uh, my right leg, whether they were going to be able to save it.
0: We would do what we had to do and pack them back up, back on a ward and then a them to the next level hospital.
1: Before leaving Fubai, John told the doctors there he'd keep in touch, letting them know how he was doing. His healing journey was long though. It required more surgeries at military hospitals in Japan than Colorado. The repairs to his blood vessels succeeded, and while John ended up being medically retired from the Army as a sergeant, his leg had been saved. Decades later, he learned that a research project, spearheaded by a dedicated, stubborn Army doctor, may very well have contributed to the success of those surgeries. It would very definitely help him fulfill his promise to touch base with those surgeons from Fubai, but more on that later. First, meet Norman Rich.
3: I grew up in an Arizona copper mining town, And my first hero was the uh, chief surgeon in the mine. He had been a Stanford undergraduate and a Johns Hopkins Medical School graduate. And he served in France in 1917 and 1918. And I listened to him repeatedly talk about how depressing it was to have to do so many amputations. And he would always say to me, "Uh, Norman, someday uh, blood vessels are going to be repaired and you should be part of that.
1: Following the path his hero had taken, Norm went on to medical school at Stanford, where a couple professors became particularly important mentors.
3: The two of them who had been in World War II said to me, uh, when you do have the experience, you should observe, you should document, you should analyze, uh, you should go to the laboratory and study, come back and see what's best for the clinical uh, scene but most importantly, also provide long-term follow-up. And that was a little bit of the carrot for me because in vascular surgery, uh, in the annals of vascular repair, nobody had really done long-term follow-up, as we call it.
1: And the means of passing on hard-earned wisdom acquired by battlefield surgeons were at best inefficient, sometimes almost frighteningly crude. One experienced surgeon who took Norm under his wing, a very senior Army medical officer, carried his teaching tool with him
3: he had a big piece of cardboard with the names and the outcomes if you will on this both sides of this piece of cardboard that he carted around and he and i both decided that if i started a registry i had to upgrade (laughs) the effort above that after were were these sort
1: of examples of different types of cases and and how you should treat them yes absolutely yeah what norman rich created the vietnam vascular registry was an extraordinary upgrade. It collated the records of thousands upon thousands of vascular repair surgeries done on U.S. soldiers and Marines between 1965 and 1972, gathering information from the 600 American surgeons who served in the armed forces during those years. Looking back, there's no doubt that Norm was the project's driving force.
3: In the military, the first question that people raise is, who gave you the authority to do this?
1: (laughs) Sure, right, given the the scale of the project.
3: One of the generals told me, you know, that old adage about uh, just proceed until apprehended.
1: The data Norm gathered allowed big-picture analysis of what worked and what didn't when trying not just to save the lives, but also the limbs of people wounded in battle.
3: Even in World War II, the vast majority of extremity injuries resulted in ligation or tying off of injured arteries and
1: veins. Sure, with a tourniquet.
3: Yes, well, they didn't even use the tourniquets that often, and part of the problem, in contrast to this century, is tourniquets can cause damage if left on for a period of time in the evacuation. You know, the evacuation averaged 12 hours in World War I, and World War II is probably 6 hours. and. They learned in World War II that if you have a tourniquet on or if you don't have arterial blood flow within six hours, the extremity will likely be lost. So we had all of that, and we were able to add to that and stress that the veins should be repaired in the extremities as well as the arteries because blood goes in a circle.
1: Lessons learned were valuable and put to use, but politics in the wake of a controversial war sometimes proved a cloud hanging over Norm as he tried to present his research findings outside military circles.
3: We did suffer for a period of time when very few people in the United States wanted to hear the word Vietnam, so we had some tough years.
1: A more positive experience for Dr. Rich, getting to meet over the years many of the vascular surgery patients whose records he had collected and analyzed.
3: One individual was the uh, lawyer for Sonoma County in California. Another individual became a Hollywood actor and film producer. Uh, Another individual uh, became a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon. So uh, I met and uh, really benefited from the exchange with so many former casualties. And each time I would have the exchange with one of them, I'd always try to write to the former surgeons who had operated on them.
1: And Norm's continued to make those sorts of connections. Doing so now at 84, as a professor and researcher at the military's medical school, the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. And it's become much easier in just the past couple years, thanks to the people in the Defense Department in charge of formal record keeping.
3: Make a long story short, uh, they took all my 114 linear feet of hard copied records and digitized them.
1: Back to John Fogle. By Army reunion, last
2: October in um, San Antonio I attended and I started wondering if, if I wonder if those surgeons from the 22nd are still around I, I really need to find them because I told them I would report back to them someday and, and tell them give them a progress report of how I was doing and uh, when I was in the hospital I couldn't use my arm for six months I couldn't write letters I lost track And I never wrote them, and I promised I would. And so I started looking around, and I found out they were going to have a reunion. And that's what started my uh, quest to find these surgeons, but I didn't have any names yet.
1: This is where it turns out that Norm Rich's obsessively detailed record-keeping came into play. Online, John read an article about the digitizing of the Vietnam Vascular Registry. The article noted how much easier this made searching through all the accumulated data. So John reached out to Dr. Rich.
2: He sent me an email and said, "I can find your records, and it'll have all the doctors' names on it." And uh, what he did,
1: it turned out that the doctor who likely made the critical blood vessel repairs had died, but John was fairly quickly able to find that orthopedic surgeon who'd been in the operating room at the Twenty Second Surgical Hospital.
2: Doctor Monroe uh, Levine was my first surgeon, and he's the one that uh, was operating on me at the Twenty Second. I met Doctor. Uh, Levine in Denver.
0: I couldn't tell you I remembered this case any different from any other case, so to speak. My partner, Dick Bergstrom, he recorded every case he did. He kept a log and he still keeps a log to this day of of things he does. And so he went back and looked and remembered doing that case.
1: The two of you working together.
0: We took you both orthopedics.
1: And I've seen an image of a slide that may have come from his collection Correct. And that he says then shows the two of you operating on John.
0: Yes. Hard for me to say,
1: but he's, he's got it.
2: <laughs> I think uh, he had four other operations that day that I was in there on the 25th of July in 1969. He's a very humble person, I believe, and uh, he's amazing.
1: Both John and Moe say they're in awe of the work Norm Rich did to save soldiers' arms and legs. John is a patient. Moe is a combat surgeon.
0: Blood vessels obviously are critical for the extremity to survive. And so when a person has a gunshot wound to the extremity, hopefully it misses the vessel. But obviously that's not always the case. And Dr. Rich, who was a vascular surgeon at Walter Reed, have seen a lot of these coming from Vietnam, and in his innate ability, decided to study them and follow them. And that made a big difference And how the management took place over time that was an amazing thing to do in a time when there's a lot of chaos going on with casualties It was a government that was denying a war going on there was all this and he in the middle of all that was able to set up this registry so that now we could study these patients see what we could do better in the acute situation and long term he saw through it and he stuck with
1: it John Fogel's grateful a second time for how the Vietnam Vascular Registry has allowed him to continue to find the doctors who saved his life and limb and say thanks.
2: And I hope some other people can use this as well that may be looking for their surgeons. It's available. It, you, know, you just have to ask.
1: And Dr. Rich says he's happy to get emails from Vietnam vets looking to make that contact. His email is norman.rich at usuhs. Dot edu. One more time, Norman.Rich at U-S-U-H-S E-D-U. We've posted it on ConnectingVets.com. If you go to the site, search Vietnam Vascular Registry.
2: I'm so thankful that, uh, you know, I, I'm a healthy person, pretty much healthy, uh, because of their uh, uh, dedication, you know, saving lives and saving limbs. And I um, can't thank them enough.
1: I want to thank John Fogel and Drs. Mo Levine and Norm Rich for sharing their stories, and Sarah Marshall of the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences for drawing our attention to the Vietnam Vascular Registry. Appreciation, too, to Entercom Radio in Denver and KKSM at Palomar College in San Marcos, California, for providing interview studios as we worked on this story. I'm Chaz Henry. From ConnectingVets.com, this is CBS Eye on Veterans.